Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So today, we can finally push Donald Trump to the back of our minds. It'll never be over. I know. The Trump movement will continue to be a major challenge, just as the Bush administration continues to be a major challenge so many years later. But for the first time in four years, there really are mm, higher priorities for us right now. More immediate fights, urgent fights. At the top of this list is the $1.9 trillion Joe Biden American Rescue Plan. That's what it's called. This is our fight. And make no mistake, this is going to be a fight every step of the way until the rescue plan is signed and money starts flowing. If we look away, working people will get robbed. So let's break it down. First, the size of the package, well, it's under attack. And not just from Republicans, there are quite a number of economists on the Democratic side of the aisle who are getting wobbly. I want to go through this, even if it's a little bit technical and econometric talk, but because it is important, we are ready to make the case at any moment for the $1.9 trillion. The traditional economic theory, which even some of these Democratic economists are offering, is that government stimulus should equal the amount that output has fallen below full production. If you go over the number, you run the risk of inflation. But there are several problems with this. First, it is notoriously hard to know exactly where the maximum output line is. It might well be less than $1.9 trillion. But the truth is, we don't really know where that line is. We are in very rare territory. We know that the country has for years been estimating the risk of inflation when the country is close to full production, overestimating that. We had 3.5% unemployment and very little inflation when the coronavirus hit. In other words, these economists are raising a possible future risk that they can't quantify against the immediate human crisis we feel every day, everywhere in this country, every single place we go. So point one is we must not let the anxiety of some economists or the craving for bipartisanship in some quarters of the party to undermine the size of this package. But size is only the first piece of the challenge. The package has begun working its way through the sausage factory known as the U.S. Congress. The details matter. I, for one, still don't buy the idea that a promise of a $2,000 check is fulfilled by sending only $1,400 and telling everyone to add $600 check from last December, whatever. And the supplement to unemployment insurance should be bigger, and it should be guaranteed until at least next year or until unemployment is back below 4%. And of course, the $15 federal minimum wage needs to stay in this package, even though I believe that that is a very low number for the times that we live in. This is probably the only way that the $15 minimum wage will get adopted is through this stimulus package, at least in the next five years, which, well, the fight for $15 has been going on for a decade. It doesn't affect that $1.9 trillion cost, which of course is why there will be a big push in the Senate to take it out as not germane to a budget bill, but it is germane to working families who support this economy, who make this economy float. And the point of this rescue plan is to stabilize those working families so we can turn to the business of building back 
a better country. You know that slogan? Okay. And that, of course, leads to the biggest point of all. The best way to address the fear of inflation is increase the productive capacity of the country. In other words, instead of cutting down the $1.9 trillion rescue plan to find the total output line, raise the total output line. And that means investments in productivity, in training workers, building new equipment, building factories. Corporate America would take the first step by investing, investing some of the trillions of dollars they are sitting on. That would be about, I mean, that's what they need to do. Frankly, it is the height of hypocrisy and inequity to argue that a $1.9 trillion rescue plan for working people might be too big because our productive capacity isn't big enough when corporate America has the assets to fix this right now. If they want to head off the risk of inflation, just put, a, put some of that money, some of that money that's in your mattress, mattress right now into productive investment. At the same time, there are bigger investments in our future and that government, you know, the government should be able to make it. Broadband access for every community, rural communities, green technology for our homes, offices and transportation, urban centers designed for people, you know, instead of cars, public health services that protect all of us from the next pandemic, you get it. Wasn't that great talking all about, you know, all of that? without mentioning Donald Trump once, this year is not about Donald Trump. This year is about investing in our people and our country so we can all share in its greatness. That's what this is about. So we have to use this opportunity to not just push for stimulus, push for better stimulus, and make sure that even after this stimulus is passed, we get more. $15 should not be dependent on a stimulus package. We don't know when the $15 minimum wage will get passed, and it's well overdue that we even got a $15 minimum wage. It should be much higher, and we know that. To survive in most cities in America, it needs to be higher. To be, to be able to pay the rent, to be able to pay off back rent, it has to be higher. We have to talk about eliminating debt. There's so many bigger things we need to talk about, and that is why this stimulus needs to hold true. It needs to be honest, and we need to push harder. And that is the least that the Biden administration can do. Because now that impeachment is over, we can focus on what matters, recovering. Joshua Con Russell and Napoleon DeLegend are here today. And as soon as we come back, labor writer and organizer Kim Kelly, she's one of our favorites, will hear, she'll be here to talk about the latest on Amazon. All right, we will be right back right after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am super excited to welcome back our friend, Kim Kelly. She is a labor writer. Uh, she's a columnist at Vogue uh, magazine. Uh, she, Teen Vogue, of course, which does amazing progressive uh, reporting outside of the stores. She has been covering the Amazon fight, which we've been covering uh, over the past few weeks. She automatically like regularly covers uh, intersectional labor history. She's the author of the for- forthcoming book, Fight Like Hell. There she is, Kim Kelly. Welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. So, 
so many things are happening right now. So it's, <laughs> I was like, should we have Kim on to talk just about Amazon or the 9,000 other things that are happening uh, nationwide? But Amazon is so significant and we've covered it several, t- several times in the show, but you have been on the ground in Bessemer. Um, I, I guess, where do we start? Where, where is the vote right now? Because they're in the process, right? Yeah, so it's a mail-in vote. So it's not as exciting as, you know, walking up to a box and dropping your ballot in and, you know, mad dogging your boss. It's kind of a longer process. The ballots were mailed out to workers on February 8th, and they have until March 29th to get those in. So we're not going to find out what happens for a while now. So right now the union is just focusing on organizing, getting the vote out, and I guess kind of crossing fingers at this point. Why is the process so long for the mail-in? I mean, we've had a lot of mail-in experience over the last year of this pandemic. This seems a lot longer than a traditional electoral mail-in process, uh, as imperfect as that is. It, It just seems very long. Yeah, well, it's being run through the NLRB, a government agency, but not an electoral one. And I think it's pretty typical. One of the reasons that unions always kind of hope to secure voluntary recognition in the first place is that it's quick. It's a quicker process. Insisting on a mail-in vote like Amazon has done ensures it's going to be a much longer, more drawn-out process and give them more time to try and mess around with, uh, with the results. Is there any sort of sense right now that that's happening? Well, I can't speak to what's happening right this second because I'm back home in Philly, but I know over the past few months, they've been really working overtime to bust this union using all kinds of nefarious methods. Some we've seen before, some that are even newer. Okay, so let's talk about these nefarious methods. I mean, we've we've touched on this on the show, but let's repeat it because it's worth repeating over and over so people know what happens when you try to take on a huge monopoly with the world's second richest man, I guess at this point, but previously the world's richest man leading uh, Amazon. Uh, what's, What's happening? So this all kicked off in about October is when the organizers showed up and they really started getting things going. And something that I was told by, and you know, I'll count it with some allegedly, but something I was told by multiple organizers, people who are there on the ground every single day, is that five days after they showed up, there was a, a traffic survey that was ta- that happened to be taken at the intersection where organizers wait to chat with workers as they leave in their cars in front of the facility. And apparently, they changed the traffic light timing. And why that matters is because, you know, there's a little concrete block where the organizers stand and they'll chat with people in their cars as they're leaving. And the, they change the timing on the traffic lights. So as soon as a car approaches, boom, it's green. They keep on going. They have no time to talk to people. And that just shows the sort of nitty gritty, super intense little ways, detailed ways that Amazon is using to derail this effort. And of course, with the classic, the anti-union flyers, the banners, the closed circuit TVs in the facility, we have the flyers in the bathroom where workers are famously only given a few minutes to go thanks to their overlord, Jeff Bezos. We've, oh, they've been inundated with text messages on their personal cell phones, as well as the app that they use, that the Amazon uses to track them during the workday. They've just been hammered on every side because Amazon is scared. They, they realize, you know, this is happening. If I, I personally think they wouldn't be trying quite as hard if it wasn't so important because this is the first domino. And once the first domino falls, there are a lot of Amazon warehouses, a lot of Amazon facilities, and a lot of Amazon workers who aren't being treated properly. And all you really need is that first spark 
and the workers here in Bessemer are about to light that match. Um, how do they get away with manipulating the traffic lights? This is a private corporation. It's a government like duty to to oversee traffic lights. How how does that happen? And I mean, if that to me feels like it's it's worthy of an investigation. Like later on, five years from now, we're gonna go, whoa, what? <laughs> that happened? Right. We did, you know, we did contact the county and contacted as many people as we could find to be like, yo, what are you, what you doing? That can't be right. But it's it sounds and you know, the the person, the the videographer that I was there with, she's been focusing more on that. But it sounds like, you know, anybody can ask for a traffic survey. So it's not technically illegal. It just happened to be that Amazon wanted them to check out these specific lights in this specific intersection. It's, it's just one of the ways that corporations that have a huge amount of power and a huge amount of pull, especially in a smaller town like Bessemer, they can kind of make things happen, whether it's right, whether it's legal. I'm not a lawyer. I can't say, you know, just how above board it was. But at the end of the day, it happened. It's still happening. Um, Bessemer is a small town, but it's a union town. Can you talk a little bit about the history of, of, of Bessemer and why maybe this happened to be, be fertile ground for this kind of organizing? Right. As you said, Bessemer is a union town, and that's kind of a rarity in that area of Alabama. But Honestly, there is Alabama in terms of Southern states, in terms of states in general, it does have a pretty rich history. Like there's there's a huge history of coal mining in that state. There are a ton of unionized coal mines. I think there's only one that isn't union now. You know, people there are right now with RWDSU, the union that's organizing with these workers, they already have local warehouses and local poultry plants, especially who have already been unionized, who have already gone through the contracts and won better protections, better wages. There is Alex Press, who had a really great piece in the New Republic recently, she really delved into that history deeper than I can in a quick interview, just about how there is this kind of interracial working class solidarity rooted in this town just for, from earlier attempts to organize. Like, at a first glance, it looks like Bessemer is a, like, why would this ever happen here? But honestly, why wouldn't it happen here? You know, this Amazon facility is new and it brought with it a new kind of labor and a new kind of exploitation. And the people that have that muscle memory that know that something else is possible, they're the ones who looked around and were like, okay, something's got to change. Um, all right. So RWDSU, I, I live in New York. They're a very well-known union in New York. But can you tell us a little bit more about who they are? Are they present in Alabama? Like, how, how does this work? How do the mechanics work? Like, you're in a right-to-work state. You're in a, a southern state. Even if there's a union um, history, a larger union is able to come. How, how does that work, like, for a union that doesn't have a presence in the state? How do they come in? How do they work with them? I mean, they do. They do already have a presence because they're and but they're kind of known for as a like the chicken plant union. Like they've done a ton of work organizing poultry plants. Which, if you want to talk about harrowing conditions and worker mistreatment, poultry plants are like the seventh circle of hell. Like they've done a lot of work in that sector, lifting people up. And actually, a lot of the organizers who are involved with the Vestmer campaign, they're member organizers. They are coming from other unionized shops. They're shop stewards. They're people who are involved in the union, and they're coming from the poultry plants to come spend their time working on this campaign so there's so much solidarity happening there yeah i said nice like it broke my heart i was like this is like this is real solidarity you know like i'm gonna take a leave of absence from my job at a poultry plant and come out here and stand in the middle of the street and try to talk to people about how you know we can help 
Yeah, it's, it gets to you. It's like everyone needs a union, but these folks really need a union. They deserve a union. Like Amazon's been fighting so hard against them. It's like, just, just lay off, you know, leave them alone. <laughs> well, not only you saying leave them alone or, or, or solidarity, like other activists and other organizers from the same union leaving them, uh, their investors are saying leave them alone in the EU, in the UK, and even in the States. Is there any sort of update on like how Amazon's responding to their own investors being like, let them organize, dudes? Like, just chill. <laughs> I mean, what? How does that, first of all, how does that happen? How... If, if they're dictated by the bottom line, like there must be a moment where the rubber meets the road. And, and if the investors are saying like, who's wagging the dog, I guess is the best way of saying it. Right. Like I, the inner workings of Amazon are imperceptible to me as a normal mortal. Right. But it's all, it's all interesting timing. You know, we, one of, one of our first videos with more perfect union, the, the outlet semi there, one of our first videos came out and that same day, Bezos was like, Oh, I'm going to step aside and do phil, you know philanthropy. I'm going to go be a good guy. Don't be mad at me anymore. Pay attention to me. Don't pay attention to the union. And then this letter came out. I think there were a bunch of uh, letters from elected officials here that were like, hey, knock it off. Like there is so much public pressure building and the investors are the ones like that. That does interest me because they don't care what the public thinks. They care where, what the people that have the money think. And the fact that so many of these investors are in Europe where labor law, you know, still not perfect, but it is a sight better than ours. Like it just shows how intense this is and how brutal Amazon's response has been like when the pe- when other millionaires are being like hey let's just you know take a beat like you might be the bad guy you know but what percentage of I don't know if you, if you know this or not but like what percentage of their investment is this do is there any sense is are there other investors like ignore those Europeans those weaking like I don't know I mean I, I don't know the investor world but like it was such a notable thing to me and I'm thinking if they're still not listening there must be some other investors who are maybe it's more money or they're more uh, there's more pressure. I don't know. I mean, it's a mystery. Like what goes on in those people's heads? Like I don't understand rich people to start with, but when you're dealing with someone like that, they're just like, I was just reading um, this new book called fulfillment by gosh, Alec McGillis, just about the way that Amazon has sort of reshaped the social fabric of the places that it comes into. And just the way that it described the culture in that company and the, and the way that Bezos sees the world. It's like, this is like some free-for-all libertarian, you know, greed is good kind of attitude. Like maybe the investors have you know, have a little bit of pull. I mean, Jay Carney, mm-hmm. the guy who's in charge now, he comes from the Obama world. Oh, like there are, yeah, there are a lot of quotes of him being like, Hey, work, be nice to workers. And now it's like, well, here's your chance, Jay. Where are you yeah. at? <laughs> like, I don't think. The, the revolving door, man. Um, okay, so so can we just, I, I know you've been covering this stuff for a while, but I'm very curious about how they embed themselves into communities. Um, which communities, why they choose those communities, why Bessemer, why why Queens, why other parts of the country, there's several, several, several parts of the country, but like, how do they pick? Is it tax incentives? Is it labor laws? Like, what is it? From, you know, from observing and reading about this a little bit, it seems like, you know, obviously it's a combination of the two. It's like, what'll be the most hospitable environment for us to do whatever the heck we want to do? Right. Like if you look at like Queens versus Bessemer, Queens, there was all this local opposition. People didn't want them there. They would have they were caused a headache. So Amazon's like, fine, fine. 
will leave. And then in March th this past year, they show up in Bessemer, which is an impoverished town that's majority black, is in a right to work state, red state, Republican state. It seems like it would be extremely fertile grounds for them to just roll in and be like, oh, we brought you all these jobs. Don't worry about what they're like, but we brought mm -hmm. them for you. Like, you know, give us all kinds of tax breaks. Like the amounts of tax breaks and incentives that are involved in all of this, even if you look back to when they were trying to decide where to, uh, where to locate their next headquarters, which I think is in uh, like the DMV area now. It's like all of these cities were just throwing themselves at them, like sending cactuses and naming towns after them and being like, here, we'll give you millions and millions and billions of dollars of tax breaks. Like that's what they want. Mm. Like, I, don't, I don't know what the deal was in Bessemer. I'm sure there are some numbers involved. But from my perspective, just in speaking to people and just kind of following this from you know, the worker's eye view, Amazon wants to be in places where it can kind of create its own private fiefdom. Like they want to be the king, you are the serfs, you will take the, the bread and gruel you are offered, and you'll be happy for it. And mm -hmm. if you have issues with that, then they're going to send out the cavalry. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how um, the effect that these big monopolies uh, have had on, on small businesses lately. And, you know, when Walmart started to go to small towns across America and similar kind of, you know, tax breaks and we're going to help you, et cetera, et cetera. This is what, 20, 30 years ago. If, if you can, like, can you compare like what it, the difference between a Walmart coming in to every town in America and wiping out small businesses and, and later on not providing benefits, et cetera. Can you compare that to like what, what stage like Amazon is in relation to that? Right. It's interesting because they, I do see them as two heads on the same Hydra. Right. They're all part of this predatory capitalist world squeezing entity that wants to extract every drop of blood and profit from the rest of us. But it seems like in terms of Walmart, they saw this opening, they maneuvered into it. And now there's Walmarts everywhere. But Walmart isn't, you know, moving into cloud computing and making deals with the Pentagon. Walmart isn't in however many like dozens of foreign countries. Walmart isn't, you know, trying to in like knows its way into all these different industries. Like it's not in the logistics world and the food delivery world and the healthcare world. And God, I can't even keep up with Amazon is up to. And that's kind of the point because they're everywhere. They're so omnipresent and they're so powerful and they're so well resourced. They can kind of do whatever they want. There's there. I mean, Amazon is more powerful than some governments at this point and they're better resourced. You know, I, it seems you know, kind of funny to say, but world domination just seems to be their whole goal. And honestly, they're well on their way. Who do you know anybody who who isn't an actively political person who doesn't use Amazon? No, of course not. And even then, it's very hard. Like you, you know, you don't even know sometimes. Like they're they're outsourced or part of some program. Like you set up a right. website, and then like, oh, the server is Amazon. You don't even know. It's like yeah. part of Twitter. We're on Twitter. They use Amazon Web Services. Like, yep. there's Twitch. no escape. Yeah. yeah, there's no escape. And that's that's how they want it to be because every new nook and cranny they find, every new area they find to exploit, that's more money for them and more power for them. And that's what it all comes down to. You know, they're like, you know, we, we're used to the 19th or the 18th, 19th century robber barons. They're like, you know, Standard Oil took over a big chunk of the world, but Amazon makes Standard Oil look like chump change. Absolutely. And and today, Biden, uh, the Biden administration announced that they're looking to Amazon to distribute vaccines. Oh, good. That'll go great. 
not postal <laughs> service that is in desperate need of any support, funding, good, whatever it is. Yeah. Don't we have, like, just resurrect the Pony Express. Jesus. Like, <laughs> like, that's better than Amazon. Like, just just because you can doesn't mean you should. Put a drone on it, Kim. That's all you got to do. Just, just drone in. Drop it off in Granny's house to do the vaccine on the balcony. Take care of it. That's it. Yeah, and meanwhile, just, they'll just scope out the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, right. Peek in your kitchen. Like, oh, what do you got in the pantry? What's your neighbor got in the backyard? Don't worry about who made the drones or who else might be using the drones to kill whoever else somewhere else. Right. Just, right. you know, do it fast, do it quick, make it easy, and don't think about it too much. Exactly. So let's, um, in terms of the organizers on the ground, like, what what sort of lit the match? Like, why, how did this start from, from the beginning? So like a lot of union campaigns, it started with a phone call. I actually, um, I got to meet and interview one of the first people who reached out to RWDSU. He's, I won't, I won't out him because he still works there, but he, um, he started working at Amazon after he was coming from a unionized company. He ended up there and then he got there and, you know, he saw what the conditions were like. He talked to his coworkers. He found how unhappy and dissatisfied and unsafe people felt. And so he went on Google and he found the most likely looking union and he gave him a call and then boom, you know, it comes down to that spark. There was this core group of, of employees, of workers who got together, like we, something's got to give, we got to do something. And now that has just ballooned into thousands of people who have had enough and are doing something about it. So you call up a union and you, what, you have a meeting with them, a top secret meeting as a worker, and you say, can you, can you guide me through what it means to be protected? Like, how do we start organizing? Is that, is that how this right. works? Now, so going back to my own experience back when I was at Vice and we were organizing there back in whew, 2015, a million years ago. Um, yeah, you reach out to a union and then you, you or a couple people, you sit down, you talk to them, you talk about your workplace, talk about your goals, you see if it's a good fit. And then once you decide, okay, we want to do this, that's when you start talking to your coworkers and trying to see if you can put together a bigger group. You start getting, you pull out the union cards and see how many people will sign them to see how much interest there is. And if you can get to a majority, like a majority of people who are eligible for that bargaining unit, which is just the union, like people are in it. Once you get to a majority, then you can either hit up your boss and be like, hey, we would like voluntary recognition. And the boss, sometimes they'll be like, okay. And sometimes they'll be like, no, you have to have an election. You have to spend months of your life organizing, which is what happened here. <laughs> the election is never, it's never the ideal, but it's coming at a good time for these folks because, you know, post-Trump and our new post-Trump semi-post-Trump world, the, the new administration has actually, I'll give it to them, they've actually done a few things that are helpful for workers. And chief among them is shaking up the National Labor Relations Board, the government entity that runs these elections. You know, before the Biden administration rolled up, it was stacked full of Trump-appointed, anti-union, just union-busting scum. And Biden fired a couple of them. And now there's going to, and, and, you know, I don't know the specific mechanics of how you repopulate it with decent humans, but it's, it's a much better composition of people to be in charge of your union election than it would be a year ago. If you're comfortable, I'd love to talk about your experience at Vice. Ooh. <laughs> I, mean, I work in media, so <laughs> listen, it's very selfish. Um, I'd like to unionize my small team on behalf of, no, yes. <laughs> on behalf of the, the host. No, but for real, um, Vice, I mean, this was this was probably, if I recall, one of the 
first big union, I mean, notable uh, groups that decided, uh, employees that decided to organize. Um, and it started this work. I mean, even last week, I think other, I can't remember which media, but uh, another media entity came out and said that they were organizing um, the Daily News. I mean, even right-wing publications are organizing now and, and deciding to unionize. So this is, it definitely, uh, that was the match that got lit and and it keeps going. So, you know, you were at Vice. Uh, what was your experience like? How did you decide, like, this is the moment, we're going to do it and this is how we do it? Well, I, so I worked there as a, a permalancer for like eight months for that. And I got hired, I got hired in July. And then two weeks later, I got pulled into uh, like a coffee meeting with two of my coworkers who were like, hey, we've been talking we want to start a union. What do you think about that? I was like, well, how do I sign up? How do I get involved? Because unlike, from my experience, unlike a lot of folks who are in like the New York media world, I'm from like a working class union family. Like my dad works construction. I'm used to him complaining about union meetings and going on strike. So I was like, oh, unions are a good thing. Of course I want to be involved. And then, you know, I wasn't there for the very, very beginnings. I wasn't on staff. I was on staff, but I was fake on staff. You know, that cool media trick they do. Work 40 hours, won't give you any benefits. It's great. Love it. But <laughs> I very quickly got involved with the whole effort. And, you know, we had our organizing committee. We came up with our pattern of demands. We started bargaining. We spent nine months getting our first contract. Then we spent a little bit less than that, getting our second one. And then I got laid off because media. But uh, I will, one, probably the only thing I will give to Vice is that they did voluntarily recognize us within about an hour. So that made it so much smoother. That's something we've seen happen fairly often in the kind of digital media world because there are a lot more eyeballs on what's happening at Vice or at Gawker, RIP, or at DNA Info, also RIP, because, you know, we are the media and, you know, reporting on ourselves is one of our favorite things to do. But the optics and the public pressure are so much easier to marshal when it's like, oh, like this billionaire guy who bought the entourage mansion but still pays his workers nothing, he doesn't want a union, like that has an impact. Whereas it's a lot harder to shame Jeff Bezos or the owner of a, a random chicken plant in Alabama. You know, we lucked out in that way. And we're with the Writers Guild of America East where I'm on my second term as an elected uh, union council member, which is still very funny. And we've organized like over, a, I'm probably getting up towards 20 shops in the digital media space. And the News Guild has done, you know, they've been involved in, in that too. And they have the more traditional world as well. So it's been a whole wave. And that's kind of how I ended up doing labor reporting because I did it myself. Before that, I was a heavy metal journalist. And I just kind of pivoted in an unexpected direction. Life t sends you in that direction. Um, so uh, where do you see everything going with Amazon? Uh, pivoting back to that for a second. Uh, I mean, we the 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 vote is going on till the end of March, and then what? I think, and this is just me saying it. I think they're going to win. A lot of the organizers and workers I spoke to think they're going to win because there's so much enthusiasm and there's so much need for it, and it's such a it's such a bottom up movement. Mm -hmm. Like it's not the the union coming in and being like, "All right, come on, you're all going to sign in." Like yeah. no, the the union is the workers, you know, and it spread much faster than RWDSU expected to the point where they were expecting a campaign half the size, and wow. they had to send a whole bunch more people in <laughs> and readjust their plans because they were like, "Oh, okay, we're cooking with fire." 
So my concern going into it is not that they won't win as much as what Amazon will try to do to mess with the results, right? Because once you get that win, they can still, you know, they can appeal, they can, there's a lot of more nefarious stuff they can do. And I don't even want to think about half of it, but this is a very delicate time, you know, between sending out the ballots and getting those ballots counted because of the, there's a lot of rules around NLRB run elections. There's a rule called the 24 hour rule that states that Amazon at the very least has to knock it off with their captive audience meetings that they've been holding for hours every day. And they kind of have to pull back on their union busting campaign to allow the election to proceed fairly. So they're kind of being forced to sit on their hands right now, but we know what Amazon's like. We know that they're not just standing by idly. We know they're planning something. And that is, you know, that's kind of what we need to look out for. And that's why we need to keep eyes on the struggle, why people need to keep exerting public pressure on Amazon to tell them, you know, this is the right thing to do. Don't screw it up. So more investors, if you're listening, wherever you are, <laughs> keep threatening. Yeah. yeah. Come get your boy. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Uh, Kim, thank you for this incredible work, the honesty, being on the ground, uh, being a voice for so many workers out there who don't have access to the media as much as media is under attack with with Amazon or not. Uh, we all kind of rely on their platforms in many ways and sometimes many ways and sometimes even their funding. So um, thank you. It's a dangerous space. We appreciate what you do and we hope to have you back on very soon, maybe for a victory. You know, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> That's it. And through the Amazon airwaves. <laughs> Shout out, <Right>. Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Until next time. Thank you so much, Kim. Take care. All right, y'all. We will be right back with our amazing panelists. The same ones that come on every Tuesday. Our favorites, Napoleon DeLegend and Joshua Con Russell, will be on right after this mini, mini, mini break. Shout out to Twitch. Shout out to our mods. Who else do we have in here? Actually, before I go, I'm going to give out some shout outs. Shout outs. Yes, the mods. Uh, you know, the trolls are there doing their thing. They're bored. They're just like looking for channels to troll. So thank you to everybody who's in the chat right now, giving the love. And Kyler Asato uh, says, would love to see this talk about Alabama, the Alabama union movement with the U.S. Senate campaigns in Arkansas, Missouri, Florida, Kentucky, and North Carolina. Great point. Uh, I personally feel like that's, that's the key. Like every single election, we should be weaving in conversations about unionizing. And I think that's what's really odd to me right now about the Biden administration. As much as he's doing certain things that are good for unions, it's too little too late. He relied on so many workers to get him elected. Um, and I'm not just talking about white collar workers. I'm talking about workers across America. Uh, you know, Bessemer is a perfect example. It's a majority uh, black union or supposed, you know, soon to be hopefully union. These are organizers who are people of color, not the white working class that Biden banked on to get elected. It was his strategy. It's about getting workers across the country organized, and they turned out for the Democrats. And it's too late for lip service at this point. The economy is spiraling. No um, Band-Aids are going to fix it. And we have to start, the Democrats have to start supporting workers in their campaigns, you know, making them front and center, running workers who have unionized, who weren't able to unionize, who come from right-to-work states. That's how you're going to be able to get things passed. Bring real people who have those experiences into Congress. Bring them into the campaigns. Profile them. 
That's the only way we get out of this. It used to be the Democratic Party and, and, and unions were intertwined. And right now it's like two separate entities and, and the Democrats only use unions when they need them. It's lip service. So we have to start intertwining them more. All right, we will be back right after this little break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Our dear friends, dear, dear, dear friends, Joshua Khan Russell is here. He is the executive director of the Wildfire Project. He is back with the one and only Napoleon the Legend, who is an Afrobeat hip hop artist and activist out of Brooklyn, doing all sorts of music all over the place right now. Thank you guys for joining us. Always appreciative. Hey. Good to see you. <laughs> Good to see you. All right. Um, I want to start off with... <laughs> This weekend, I oh my god, I I really despise the fact that I even have to have these conversations. But we need to bring them up because uh, it's not going away. And part of the reason it's not going away is because the Republicans are doing all they can to seize hold of this extreme right uh, mentality right now. And they they know that they need this base, this Trumpian base, this fascistic base to survive. But and, and, and I think on, on the left, we're like, OK, we need to move on. We need to move on to bigger things. But the reality is that 70 million people voted for Trump and it's not going away. And here's a great example of how somebody who's in the institution of our United States Senate out of Wisconsin, a great working class, former unionized, well unionized state uh, that is the epicenter of the attacks on unions, Senator Johnson this weekend argued against the idea that the insurrection, uh, which was only a month and 10 days ago, he argued against the fact that it was armed, even though, you know, video proved it. Let's play that clip. Let's show that. This didn't seem as an, like an armed insurrection to me. I mean, armed, when you think here of armed, don't you think of firearms? Mm-hmm. Here's, here's questions I would have liked to ask. How many firearms were confiscated? How many shots were fired? I'm only aware of one. I wanted to take a breath, but I couldn't. I mean, I, I, I know this is it's like so hard for us leftists to be like, we have to counter this. But the reality is, if we don't. It continues and it just keeps growing. Napoleon, you're off mute first. I know you got some thoughts. Go for it. I mean, that's the, the typical sleight of hand type arguments. And they're on full on just trying to minimize anything that happened and what they do so well uh, historically, they just gonna rewrite history. They're gonna make it seem like it was just a protest and trying to equate it to like Black Lives Matter protests or something when it had nothing to do with, with those type of protests. It was an actual insurrection. Uh, and so they're just playing with words. It's just um, armed, not armed. Did they have a firearm? Like, did, did we seen a cop get beat to death uh, in, fr- in front of the steps? We seen a cop get crushed. It's like all types of, of it was a violent insurrection, regardless of the way you look at it. And, and they're just trying to change and, and own and change, shift the narrative to something else. I mean, Joshua, you've been organizing like for most of your adult life. Um, I'm just I'm, I'm just personally so worried because because they think they can get away with this. Like we had the an actual insurrection on Capitol Hill. We had our second impeachment and he didn't. He got acquitted because of basically like petty politics, not because of anything else. And yet we're sitting here and they think they can spin and pretend it didn't happen. It's amazing. I mean, 
It's something that I'm used in, in almost every social movement fight. Our opposition says what you see happening right in front of you isn't happening. Climate change isn't real, even though you're experiencing it, right? You're not actually suffering. You're not actually, you know, like there's that level of, you know, the word gaslighting is overused, but it's appropriate, right? And it, um, but on this, even in the same sentence, he was like, there's no firearms. Only one went off. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, we're just in a different terrain of politics. This is like a Goebbels style, like you just repeat the big lie often enough and people know they're being lied to or they're choosing to believe it um, in a way that is, um, you know, so, I feel like when I'm in my terrain, I know like if this was the fossil fuel industry claiming that like the freeze that just happened proves there's no climate change, I'd be like, it'd be easy for me to, to sort of say something, but something like this, I'm like, I don't even know what to say to that. What do you even say to that? You know? Yeah. But they're intertwined. I mean, listen, it's not just that there's a freeze in Houston. I just saw pictures of Athens, Greece. He's got like a foot and a half of snow. I mean, they're on the Mediterranean. There's beaches on the Mediterranean with palm trees, like, like falling to the ground. I mean, but they're intertwined. These big lies were, the model has has been created and used in every right-wing pro-capital, pro pro-monopoly, pro-big business industry to, to try to create this false debate that we know very, very well in the press um, to distract us from the real work. And mm-hmm. my, my, I, I think the thing that I'm really struggling with right now, and, and both of you, please chime in like however you want to. My, the, the thing that I'm struggling with is this is – Different, and I think we could probably all agree that this is a little bit of a different flavor of the big lie, and yet we are really on the precipice of a of a crisis that we've never experienced, and it's really hard to balance both these things at once. And so, how? And not only the left is arguably fractured. So how do how do we prioritize issues and and multitask? Well, I'll, can I share one organizing lesson that I, I think I've shared a version of on this show before, but this really underscores it, which is that for a long time, people on the left have continued to believe this notion that like the truth will set you free if you speak truth to power, that somehow things will change. Um, and that because we have truth on our side, we'll somehow prevail. I think in this, you know, whatever you want to call it, the post-truth era, I hope that really helps organizers and activists understand that that's never, that's, the problem isn't that, um, you know, if people only knew the truth, things would change. The problem is, like, we, I, I think activists seem to assume that just because what we say is true, it will be meaningful to people, mm-hmm. when in fact the opposite is the case. If something's meaningful to people, they will believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. And that's what the right understands. And social mm-hmm. movements need to give people a sense of meaning in this period where people don't know what to believe, people are suffering. And like, I mean, we're living in a declining empire and collapsing civilization where um, it makes sense that people would be like, I don't know what to, you know, I don't know what to think is right. And so if our social movements can't take care of each other and offer people meaning that will give them a context for the truth, Mm. Uh, then, I mean, that's the problem with the climate change movement. We, I mean, people have been just screaming from the rooftops as if you just like trust the science, as if that's enough, as if having the facts on your side, it's never been enough. But especially mm. now with this going on, people should understand that it's not. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I feel like it, it's like it, it's just teams right now. It's not even 
the, 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 the right wing understood and like piggybacking on what uh, Josh was saying is that it's, it's, it's just about we're part of this group. And, 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 and we're pushing this agenda. Whatever we say, we speak, it doesn't even matter. And it's like we're, um, we're caught up a lot on wanting to be right and wanting to have the facts. And people are obviously not really rational like that. And it's more about a sense of belonging. So I think on our side, it's more about just acting out, like, like doing what we have to do and engaging with people as much as we can so they can feel part of whatever movement we got going on or whatever vision of the world we have. Because they, they, it doesn't matter to them. They can say anything mm-hmm. at any time. And it, it, all that matters to them is like, we're part of this team. And, and they're gonna ride for them, ride or die, un, un, until we find a good way of engaging and, and, and getting more people on our side, you know? I'm so happy you brought up teammanship, teamsmanship because um, related to this, I. I saw this clip of Meghan McCain, um, and like I, I, I know it's just so weird because it's like I don't care about these things, but but I but we have to watch them, and I say we have to watch them because can you look back to 1939 and and if you're in your activist, if you're Rosa Luxemburg, frankly, in your space, act you know being active and ignoring. I'm not saying she was, but I mean if you were an activist ignoring the propaganda. There were two things happening at once. And I don't know if the activist world truly recognized, I'm not the right person to ask this question, just how powerful their effing propaganda was. Donald Trump won with, excuse me, almost won with 70 million votes. The, the, we, we are all so excited about Biden winning, but yet he, he, he barely kept the house barely kept the Senate in a year when he should have wiped everybody out. Meanwhile, the margin in the swing states was the closest it's ever been. And yet I feel like the Democratic Party is just so excited and progressives are organizing, focusing on all these things, which is really, 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 really important. But yet the propaganda is out there in the mainstream now, not in the extreme uh, corners of the right. And I bring this up because Megan McCain went on air on the most popular show and said this. So, Megan, what's your thoughts on all of this as you sit and you watched what happened over the weekend? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of different thoughts. I mean, I think it's easy to say that the Republican Party is only the party of QAnon and, you know, all these things. If, if that's the truth, then the Democratic Party is the party of socialism and late-term abortion and cancel culture and no responsibility or ramifications for any of your actions. And you can burn down uh, cities like Kenosha and it's fine and there's no ramifications. These are broad-stroke platitudes. I don't believe either are true. I don't think Republicans are simply QAnon supporters. I don't think Democrats are simply socialists. And the thing that I worry about right now is that we are not using our uh, intrepid values to to go forward and try and fight for what's still good in this country. And as long as we just keep going back and forth on this, there will be there will be no resolution and things will only get worse. I will say in in response to the impeachment uh, hearings over the weekend and on Friday, you know, I think it's easy to think that we can just put this like delve of 25% of people, the, the, you know, the crazy, whatever, how the media is, uh, uh, brandishing them, these, these crazy QAnon Trump supporters and that they're gone and we're just going to shame them into, into, uh, you know, into non-existence. But 
there's a lot of polls that have just come out that are reading the tea leaves really differently. There's a morning consult poll that says uh, President Trump has a 77% approval rating. Only 27% of Republicans blame him for riots, and 81% of Republicans give him uh, a positive marks all the way around. The the thing that I would say is, as much as the left wants to act like these are that Republicans are are only QAnon supporters, part of the problem is for someone like me when I hear that I automatically get very tribal, and I'm like, well, I don't want the left. Because for me, I am I am the most intensely pro-life person that that I know of, as, as particularly on on mainstream TV. I believe that abortion is murder. I believe that life begins at conception, and I know that the opposite party says that. Oh, there's some people that that don't agree with me that think that it's different. That think that abortion should happen up to up to late term. So I think the idea that that the Republican Party is just one swath is it, it, just it's just not it's cool, just not nuanced. Cool. And the problem cool. I have is the only way to become a good Republican is to become a Democrat, according to the media. And I just I don't this? know what to do anymore because I can't keep coming on uh, TV every day saying that we're all Nazis and, and, you know, Hitler salutes and whatever. It's just not intellectually honest. You know, it's not intellectually honest. You um, decided that you're siding with an entire party party who um, th- those people who went to the insurrection, uh, they facilitated and covered for the insurrectionists, the Nazis and and like the worst people in the world. And your whole cover is, well, I really care about babies, which already in most states in this country already have extremely restrictive, restrictive abortion laws. And. I won't even get your mom, who has much looser terms for abortion, by the way. I, I know Arizona very well. So what infuriates me about this is she, that is cover. She's giving effing cover to the actual Nazis in her party. And I'm, the reason why I'm bringing this up in love media and I won't let it go is because this is growing. While socialism is growing, this is growing. And until we are ready to combat that and not, Effing Joe Biden, who's just as weakling, who used some rules in the Democratic Party to win, unless you're willing to confront that, we have no path forward. Go for it, guys. Yeah, that was all over the place. I'm I'm curious, Nomi. I mean, I you started you asked us a question earlier that I realized actually neither of us answered, which was about how do you prioritize? Because there is there's there are so many th- crises. Um, and dealing with the propaganda war, um, it, like how, how do you juggle it all? And that's, I, I, I think actually you're, if there's anyone that I would want to ask that question to, it's, it's you, like, I'm curious what you think about that because this is your terrain, right. In, in media. And, you know, I think for organizers, right. There's, there's a pretty thin band of like, we have to counter disinformation that is reaching a certain group of people who are trying to organize. Right. And so, but in terms of the broader society, the broader narrative and, and in, in the, you know, the battle of the narrative, um, I learned from you. And, I, and I'm just so curious what you think about how we prioritize. What does that fight look like other than what we're doing right now? <laughs> well, before we go to me, um, maybe Napoleon has some thoughts because I, I feel like he's. He's got something in him. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm really yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really also curious about. about yeah, what you think about it? I mean, I, I, it's like we we used to talk about it actually. You know, with with with, with Michael and stuff all, all the time uh, about how do we fight? How how does the left side of the media gain power and gain? Because we, we, we it seems like the, the the centrists they have all the the, the major like uh, media blocks, and the right wings have that that huge machine, and they both have funding, and we don't have that type of funding. But, Tell me about it. I mean, but all, yeah. <laughs> 
And, but I see a lot of people such as yourself, such as, you know, the majority of reports, I see the serfs, they, they take people like that to, to take them on and they take them to task and they, and they bomb on them, like quote unquote, like every time they see things like that, how do we reach more people? Mm. I mean, th- th- that's, that's the million dollar question. Like, you know, like I know for me, from a cultural standpoint, I think it's important to bring artists and people like from from all walks of life that that do have those type of that type of vision from the world and bring them in also so we can show people that we we are diverse and it's also cool to be this way because mainstream media kind of is more leaning towards the centrist liberal type but we we, we got to show that there's people that think like us that also are doing other things. I think that's important from a cultural standpoint. From a media standpoint, I mean the the, the propaganda war is uh, it's a tough question. You know, it's a tough question to answer. I think this is um, I think this is the worst place we've been in uh, a really long time. And I say generations. I don't mean like a year, ten years. I mean I really think. Uh, since since the internet, let's just say that it's absolutely the worst place we've been, without a doubt. It's just grow. It, it's just been growing and growing and growing um, because of the monopolization, because of uh, the consolidation of the media em- enterprises, and and I don't mean like censorship. You know, that's a big. It's a term that's often used when there's a grievance over some political statement. You know. I'll just say it often comes up when, not always, make that very clear, it often comes up when there's a right winger who has gotten in trouble for saying something that is actually not protected under free speech, or maybe there's a debate over it. Not always, but, you know, great example would be like Melianopolis. No one said you're protected because you screamed fire into a crowd or Nazis or incited violence or whatever. Um, what I am saying is there's a monopoly. I mean, the the real fight, in my opinion, is over the challenge to markets, the challenge to capital. And if you are in a media space that at one point, two years ago, four years ago, five years ago, you had the more of an ability to monetize, pay bills, uh, get viewers, whatever, while you were simultaneously challenging capital, um, it was different. It was just different. I think everything changed after Bernie. I think the way campaigns were run uh, changed after Bernie. I think he threatened and he scared. He took everybody off guard because uh, growing inequality in this country uh, created fertile ground for Bernie's campaign and a uh, you know many other crises that were happening and a generation that was ready to support his policies because you know previous generations hadn't really protected them or gave them false promises of. You know, great jobs after taking out hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt or whatever it is. It was fertile ground. And then the internet uh, made it the, the viral effect of Bernie just so much more profound. And I think uh, media empires, I think political campaigns and, and institutions, and, um, and I think political fundraising, they all did whatever they could to make sure it was harder to break through the democratization of political organizing, political fundraising, uh, media, political media, and just straight up democratic politics. And 
Joshua, I appreciate you, you know, bringing me up. Like I, I have experience in a few of these places and I'll say from the fundraising perspective, uh, Facebook ads right now are still political ads. As far as I understand are banned. And on one hand, that's like great. So that like Nazis can't raise money and like push things out and Cambridge Analytica is not able. But with that being said, um, there's still tons of fake accounts out there and troll accounts that are used to as weapons to uh, silence people. And simultaneously, uh, candidates, I think this next cycle, we have to watch it very. It's going to be very hard for them to raise money. And I say that because they can't buy ads. When you can't buy ads, you can't raise money. Grassroots. It's much harder to build your email list. It's much harder to break through the algorithm. So we're, I think it's going to be harder for more grassroots candidates to break through. And we're not even equipped with understanding what that means now. Napoleon, go ahead. So, I mean, basically, I mean, it comes down to the money. I mean, I guess money makes the world go round. And, and that, I mean, they have access to a, to a lot more than us, but I, I think... It comes back to organizing and, and fundraising and, and, and supporting our platforms and growing them and, 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 and keep, keep pushing that aspect. Because like I said, I, I think that, um, and, and I think you bring out a great point that, that some people are sleeping on what's going on on the other side and the infighting is not really helping us in any type of way. I, 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 I would like to see, I mean, I sound like it's very cliche, but I would like to see a lot more solidarity coming up because we're fighting. It's an uphill battle at every single point. Every time we climb a mountain, there's another mountain coming right after it. And if if we don't band together, we don't help each other out. We don't we don't um, uplift our message. Every one of us, I, I think I, I don't know if we could take on Goliath. You know what I'm saying? Because it is Goliath. Joshua. You study movements. You studied all all this sabotage that happens from from capital and big business. What? What? I mean, there's two things that, at the end of the day, if we can deliver for people, the stories that are spun don't matter. I mean, the stories that are spun matter when people's lives aren't actually being improved, right? So when people are suffering, and because. We have a consensus in this society that everything's broken. <laughs> what the, the battle of the narrative is, why is it broken, who broke it, and what are the solutions? Um, but if we start to win and actually deliver for people, that cuts through the noise. So that's thing number one, is at the end of the day, the brass tacks of real organizing, nothing can replace it. And delivering real wins is how you build a movement, period, full stop. We build, the left will, the left is not credible uh, within, within this country right now. And what I mean is the socialist left, because we haven't demonstrated proof of concept of our ability to govern in a, in a broad enough way that people can see it and feel it. And once we do, um, I think the noise and the chatter matters a lot less. So that's, that's thing number one, um, which doesn't mean that the propaganda doesn't need to be constantly fought. Of course it does. But, um, but I, I do believe that at the end of the day, the material conditions uh, speak louder than than um, the talking heads. But on the but also, you know, I, and I've been grappling with this for is like when there is a um, you know whatever different estimate. Let's say whatever thirty five percent of the country is in. Uh, their own story, their own narrative bubble that's completely impervious to anything else. What do you do with that, right? And I and the answer is to out-organize them in the short term. There, there's no reaching pe those people in the short term, I think, um, at least not in this broad way that we're talking about. I think if you're doing local organizing, obviously finding common grounds 
um, is, uh, is exactly the, the work that needs to be happening. And that, um, you find, you know, I, my whole life I've been building unlikely alliances, but I think that kind of the, the group that's in the more hermetically sealed bubble. So I'm not just talking about discounting right wingers in general, uh, but I mean that, you know, the key, whatever that group of people in the near term, we just have to out-organize them. It's, it's, just well, that simple. It, you know? it was, I mean, it, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, how did people used to do it when they were handing out pamphlets? <laughs> how did they overthrow governments? Like, how do they do it? What was it? I mean, they had military swooping in and, and their only way of communicating was knocking on doors and handing out pamphlets. And are we becoming too, um, like, comfortable with this media rather than doing the hard work? I mean, uh, people are organizing, people are knocking on doors, even with, uh, this this pandemic even with you know social distancing etc but but is are we becoming overly reliant on media platforms and not simultaneously understanding that like the hard work on the ground is actually traditionally historically what got us out of these if we were able to fight back in any way i think we are I definitely think we are. I mean, it's easy for us. It's easy to click like. It's easy to click share. And, and we're all so used to doing it. And um, I, I, I see it. I, I, it's, it's, it's in every field I feel like it's the same way. You know what I mean? Like, I, I keep bringing up music. It's the same thing. People think you could just post your album cover on Instagram and then people are going to magically, you know, sell. When now it's harder with COVID. You have to you have to do shows. You have to show up. People have to be able to feel you. You have to you know talk to people, shake hands, and, and that's exactly goes hand to hand with what uh, Joshua does. It, it's his expertise organizing. We need to engage with people on a personal level, face to face. Well, it's like what you're saying, Napoleon, about belonging. You know, like if you're part of a real life social movement that's that's off the internet. Um, you're, you're building a real community that supports you, right? It, it doesn't just give you meaning and purpose. It's also like, you know, when, when you're sick, people take care of you. There's, there's real relationships that are built that actually, you know, it's like when the crisis hits, whatever it is, the most important thing is to know your neighbors, Online connections don't do that. You know, what, what the media algorithm does is it keeps us outraged and alienated um, and in that cycle. And it creates the illusion of, of meaning because you get the dopamine hit, right? That's factored into the addiction of the internet. And so that's what, I mean, that's also my interest is fit, like, I, I think online communication is really important. And I think uh, new media is really important. What I'm trying to separate out is what's its role in a broader ecosystem. Cause I haven't seen it translate that well into organizing. Um, but I think the, the, the huge number of people who right now are looking for answers about why things are so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's why shows like this shows like majority. Like the, I think these shows are really important, but as an organizer, I'm trying to figure out how, how do you translate one into the other? How do you translate sort of a, a, a new media audience um, into a base, right? Of, of people. Those aren't the same thing. And um and I haven't figured it out yet. I'm, I'm curious, you know? And so, yeah. I mean, one thing I've, and this is sort of the question of the last decade since participant media started, which was all about using media to create direct action. Um, when I was at TYT, we did all this uh, on the ground organizing after Trump. And I can say for sure, whether it was intentional or not, there were people who watched our on the ground um 
uh, filming of organizing and interviews with activists and whether it was the ID, you know, going against the IDC or anti-Trump efforts or, uh, you know, Puerto Rican politics, which was one of the most revealing things to me was uh, folks were tuning in and getting inspired and learning and showing up and they were inspired to run and really big name folks decided to run and now are elected and smaller, you know, local organizers and union members. I mean, we get messages all the time uh, because we'll have people like yourself on and they are inspired by your work or Jane McAlevey, or they'll have, uh, they'll see organizations that they can volunteer for. So whether it's like a direct facilitated effort or just, I mean, the right incited, hopefully what I believe is we inspire. They incite, we inspire. So um, before we go, I- That should I, be your tagline. Boom. <laughs> they incite, we inspire. <laughs> That's it. Um, before we go, I, I, right before I came on, I had a, a bunch of Wi-Fi issues for those of you who are tuning in on a majority report. Lots of Wi-Fi issues today. Um, I think it's also just because so many people are online and so many people are home and like our infrastructure is just not able to keep up with the demand wherever you are. And so uh, this is just one thing I want to say to the audience is that be patient with your hosts and your friends online because there are things way beyond (laughs) their control. Um, I was online and I, I, I knew about Houston. Houston, of course, is frozen. Houston, Texas. Just want to remind everybody in case you haven't seen this. Uh, Houston is facing a huge freeze. But simultaneously, I thought it was a gag. I was on my phone and one of my Greek friends posted a photo of the Parthenon with like an inch and a half, two inches of snow. Look at this. Look at this. This is, for those of you who've never been to Greece, uh, it is on the Mediterranean. (laughs) This is, you know, 40 minutes from a beach called Lifada, which is also under snow. And and this is not, December is definitely, you know, a little bit cooler, but in February, the end of February, this is unbelievable. So I'm texting with friends in Greece and I'm like, What's going on? They're sending me photos. They're like, we're being forced to stay home because nobody is equipped to drive in the snow. They don't know how. They don't have salt to put on the roads so that people can drive in the midst of a pandemic. So, I mean, Joshua, you have been in climate organizing for a long time. Um, I, I got to say, like, I'm, how can... Why are we debating this anymore? Why aren't we able, what's going on? Texans are freezing. Uh, There are hurricanes in Texas. There are earthquakes in Texas. There are freezes in Texas. Did I miss anything that's happening in Texas? Oh, I'm sorry. Major pandemic issues in Texas? Yeah. Okay, I have two thoughts. One is like a big picture reflection and one is about Texas specifically. The big picture is just that, um, I mean, if you've never been stuck in freezing weather without power, like 2 million of our neighbors in Texas, without a sense of when that power or heat might come back on, without resources to go somewhere else or to warm up, um, now's a good time to feel some gratitude for what you might otherwise take for granted. And um, after working on climate change for almost 20 years, I, I try to take a second to feel that Every time there's another ecological catastrophe driven by the fossil fuel industry's drive for money, uh, which is all the time. (laughs) And that helps ground me in um, how quickly and dramatically all the systems that support life on this planet are changing or collapsing. And then I use that motivation um, 
for the fight that we have in front of us, which requires change on a scale commensurate with the crisis, which is global. Um, and it means transforming the fundamentals of a capitalist economic system and nothing, nothing less. Um, so that, that was my first reaction to, you know, seeing, seeing Texas, but then, um, the, the other thought is just that I remember being at a conference over a decade ago and was on a panel with climate scientists who were saying that the melting Arctic would change weather patterns that specifically would cause freezes through the South and the Midwest in this country and take down our centralized energy grids, uh, which, you know, all over the country, but especially in Texas, are disproportionately reliant on fracked natural gas and as well as coal, coal and oil. And is one of the many reasons that just transition advocates at the time uh, were talking about not just switching to renewable energy, but to decentralizing our energy grid with localized worker control so that not just so that we would slow down climate change with less carbon in the air, but also so that we'd be more resilient for the changes uh, that are already underway. So anyway, at that time, those scientists were ridiculed on Fox News. Um, and, you know, our opposition was still saying that colder weather was evidence against climate change. Um, and it was a cynical argument then. Uh, but now the right wing is doing the exact same thing. Tucker and other right wing media now are claiming that the reason that the power at the grids down and the power is going out all over Texas is because wind turbines are freezing and therefore more dependency on ooil is the answer. That's literally the case they're making um, in Breitbart what? on Fox News. Yeah, it's amazing to me. And so just a quick, I'll just to quickly debunk that. Um, this is the result of natural gas and other fossil fuels freezing in the pipes, as well as the associated infrastructure coming offline because of this mm. unprecedented freeze, right? And so, you know, wind is actually, actually overproduced relative to conditions, according to the business mm. standard yesterday. Uh, and then according to the um, Electric Reliability Council in Texas, 26 out of 30 of the gigawatts of capacity that's offline in Texas right now is due to gas. Only four is due to wind, right? And so, you know, I know the Titanic metaphors are overdone, but it is like we're on a sinking ship and the right wing is saying that the problem is that there's not enough holes in the hull and we just need to blow out more holes in the hull. Um, and it's suicidal on a species-wide level. And so, you know... Um, it's in moments like these where we have the attention of the country on such a dramatic crisis that the, the crisis makes the case for socialism, right? Because, yeah. We, I, I mean, I, 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 I hear you on this because yeah. I, after Maria, I was in, it was in the island of Puerto Rico for um, most end of 2017 and a good chunk of 2018. And this was, there's this old line that uh, the hurricane cleared out the trees so they could see what was happening all along, right? The, uh, whether it was colonialism or, or Promesa or all the different, the, the fiscal control board or the, you know, uh, the fact that there was a tremendous amount of austerity on the island. With that being said, the attention span, and again, going back to propaganda, like why it's so dangerous is the attention span of the American people, whether it's because there were another 9,000 crises to come in the last three years or just they would invent something else on, on cable news for you to be distracted by um, or a presidential election or whatever. Um, the American people, if you don't deal with that in that moment, and then I think that's what's so important about this moment. That's what's so important about the Biden administration acting now and not sending things off to a committee or to some other thing is that if you lose this moment, you may not have it again. Mm -hmm. 
I agree because once again, it's a, it's a narrative thing because the, the, they're going to try to hijack the, the whole narrative of what's going on. And it, it's, it's, everything is pointing to like how brittle the whole system is. And, and like the fact that COVID was the same thing, like the whole healthcare system and the infrastructure was exposed just like this. Now, there's cold weather for, I don't know how long it lasted, but, and now Texas is crippled in other Midwestern states who happen to be Republican states too, uh, who probably, I'm pretty sure, deregulated, privatized everything. So there's no cohesive type of energy planning in any, any, any of these places, which is a problem. And it's also, like I said, a problem with, with, with capitalism where it's, it's um, you know, the, the, the system it's not working. And, and, and we have to really, I mean, I, I want people to realize that. And, and, and we, we have to not, and, and it was what goes back to what Miki was saying about the right wingers. They're going to try to blame it. They're going to try to deflect and they're going to try to change uh, everything. We have, people need to wake up that it's time for this system to be overhauled because these disasters are going to keep happening. That's right. Worse. This is just, we're just getting a glimpse of what's about to happen. This is like, now, like, things about climate change, we're really seeing the extremes when people were warning us for years and years that it was coming. Now we're starting to see the extremes. It's going to get worse, and it's going to spread in other places. And if if we don't get our act together, like, right now, I, I feel like that Biden administration should be speaking up about it. You know, use the, the, this... <laughs> This chance to like make a statement like this yes. is a crisis going on like two million people that's not that's negligible. Right. Speak about it. Go live and 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 go go on the podium and just 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 to to get the message out to tell people look this is why we're we're getting back in the Paris Accord that that you know Fox News is gonna try to like down and things like that. it's for these reasons and if we don't make the case if they don't make the case now like you said I think it's a, it's um it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. And the connect, you know, so they're doing well, we'll see the rollout, but the, the White House declared a federal emergency declaration, right, which allows all the counties to get Medicare, for example, right, and food, clothes and shelter. Right. And then then you connect that to the big then you connect that to the Green New Deal. Right. Because what you're saying, you know, Napoleon, is it like these universal programs are how we take care of each other in crisis. That's why we have a society, <laughs> right? And capitalism says sink or swim on your own, right? And that as crises expand ecologically, economically, politically, we're all going to be sinking. And so increasingly, and this is what you're talking about, Napoleon, as, as the contradictions get worse and as climate change accelerates um, and as, as freak storms happen more and more places, the only solutions that are going to make sense to people on a national political level, at least, are broad-based universal programs to weather the storms, which are now foundational to the ecological epoch that we're entering. Um, and so it's, it's, my hope is that, that, that they can connect the immediate direct relief that needs to happen, which at least they're doing that, you know, um, to these broader, broader, um, bigger ticket issues. I love this idea. I mean, the fact that like we're sitting here in 2021 and Joe Biden, who's been in politics for his entire life uh, for the last 45 years, 45 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, a Democratic politician, a Republican politician, George H. Walker Bush would have gotten on stage in Houston of all places, his city, and said something. And here we are today that the sitting Democrat who was, you know, came up with those folks can't even use his bully pulpit to address 
one of the largest cities in the country and say, you know, this is not normal and this is why we're joining the, I mean, beautiful idea, Napoleon. Also, why are, who, who do they have to hire to do? I mean, are you kidding me? The bare necessities are not be the, the easiest political uh, tactics are not being used right now. Everybody is frozen on the, on the left right now. And that's, I think that's what's, what makes me fearful is that Bernie Sanders and AOC and Elizabeth Warren, as progressive as they are, they are still the moderate left in the EU. And that's not going to get us out of it. It's not, they're not getting us out of it in the EU. We've got to do things much more radical, but it has to be in solidarity. So with that, I love you guys. I uh, can't wait to see you next time. Josh McCon Russell, Napoleon to legend. Everybody else Always watching. So grateful to be on. This is so, so much grateful. Fun. Oh, so I much. Love, I love talking to you guys. Love Thanks. talking to you guys too. It's a highlight. <laughs> All right. And to everybody else, thank you for tuning in. Uh, shout out to my girl, Emma Viglin, for hosting the show today. I know we had some tech issues. She had a lot of tech issues, including our tech issues. So I don't know if it's Mercury in retrograde or some satellite like hit the, I don't know what's going on. Um, but I want to send her our love. And you should too, because she manned the fort, women the fort today, uh, steered the ship. You, I'm mixing metaphors and analogies, but if you've got one that works, then use it. Uh, but shout out to Emma because I know she handled it with grace today, and I'm just so happy we're able to to fix things in time for our show. But and to the majority report crowd, thank you for tuning in, being kind to her, and you know she she went all in. <laughs> all right, and here are YouTube chat and Twitter chat donation shout outs. Kowalski from Nebraska sending love. Thank you, Kowalski. Kyler Rosado uh, says, can this conversation about building community and organizing be a clip for broad sharing? Dorsey, did you hear that? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he did. Harvey K in live chat on YouTube and Twitch. Oh no, he switched to Twitch today. That's awesome. Harvey K, our dear professor friend who will be on this week on Thursday, I believe. So you got to tune in on Thursday. He will be there. And Mini Docs, Mario Q, thank you for working the algorithms. As always, huge thanks to our mods, Bob Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel on YouTube, and Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch for keeping that live chat troll free. Thank you to everybody. Make sure to click that subscribe button. Make sure to click like before you head out. Make sure to join that chat. I'm sure there's more debate happening. We are so grateful to you. And uh, remember, we have our big book club underway. So join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Keisha to become a patron, which keeps this thing going. Uh, and also you can join our book club where we are in the midst of our February book club series. Thank you to everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern in solidarity.